0: Thank you. So, my assignment this morning is to talk about the psalms and practice. Um, Let me open this with prayer. Lord, we ask that through your spirit you would enliven us through the psalms, that you would impress them into our hearts and into our beings so that we may become uh, A living word flowing with rivers of water that fertilize the world with your kindness your grace your mercy thank you for bringing us together and please superintend these words so that they can have effect I could not possibly have created myself in Jesus name Amen okay so the Psalms Grant asked me to talk on the psalms in spiritual practice, so that's what I'm going to do. How do we use them devotionally? One contemporary scholar has called the psalms the Bible's book of the soul. That evaluation is nearly as old as the book of psalms itself. In the 4th century AD, St. Athanasius of Alexandria wrote a letter to a friend in Carthage in North Africa in that letter athanasius states that the psalms are like a garden in which many types of fruits grow some of these fruits overlap a great deal with what one finds elsewhere in the bible but he also knows that the psalms have a peculiar marvel of their own as he says one of the marvelous things about the psalms is that all the movements of the soul are represented there and portrayed there in all their great variety. He also notes that though the Psalms are very old, they seem remarkably contemporary. In fact, they often sound like our own words. I think that is what, one, uh, what John Calvin meant when, many centuries later, he said the Psalms were like a mirror. Calvin says, not an affection will anyone find in himself whose image is not reflected in this mirror. All the griefs, sorrows, fears, misgivings, hopes, cares, anxieties, in short, all the disquieting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated, The Holy Spirit hath pictured here exactly. I think these observations by Athanasius and by Calvin point to one of the main reasons why the Psalms are such a well-loved part of the Bible. There's a sense in which we can approach them as if they were written directly to us. That's not a feeling we often get when we read other parts of the Old Testament. Many times, we feel like the things presented there have very little to do with us. We feel out of place, like we've traveled to a foreign country. But there's a kind of directness to the Psalms. Even though they were composed long ago and far away, there's something about them that strikes us as if we are transcending space and time and that they are speaking our language. So I want us to make the very most of that as we seek to approach the Psalms devotionally. I believe that the rich variety of emotions pictured there is a result of the work of the Holy Spirit. So as we think about how we might engage the Psalms devotionally, we will use the image that Athanasius provided for us. The Psalms are like a garden. For our purposes, I'll say this is a garden of flowers rather than fruits, But before we talk about the flowers in the garden and the garden as a whole, we also need to attend to how the Psalms teach us the language of prayer. So those are my three points. First, the Psalms teach us to pray by giving us the language of prayer. Second, we may pick individual Psalms and images from the Psalter and enjoy them as individual flowers. But third, The arrangement of the Garden of the Psalms teaches us about the arrangement of our lives. So, learning the language of prayer. My first point is that the Psalms teach us the language of prayer. In order to learn to pray, we must first recognize that we need a prayer language. This may be an especially big hurdle for those of us who come from religious traditions that sprang from the Great Awakening. And that is pretty much all of us. That movement prized deep emotional responses to the preaching of the gospel, which are not bad, by the way. Such responses were seen as a sign that the converts had broken free of any cold traditionalism and that they were putting the gospel into their own words, into their own language, into their own forms of expression. I'm not suggesting that any of this is inherently bad, but this tradition ends up placing a great deal of pressure, both on the speakers and the listeners. Preachers become like big tent revivalists who must always offer a stirring sermon that leads to expressions of emotion. Those who hear the word are judged to be genuine or disingenuous based on how much they feel and how effective they are in putting the gospel into their own words. But what if we don't have the words? What if we're too emotionally spent to produce this kind of response? Have we failed? Even at a more basic level, what if we don't actually know how to respond at all? The Scriptures as a whole and the Psalms in particular have been put here as God's words to us that we can speak back to Him. This is what Eugene Peterson calls answering God. We can answer God with God's own words. And that is not some sort of inferior form of prayer. As one author states, There's nothing wrong, nothing sub-Christian about using words, set forms, prayers, and sequences of prayers written by other people in other centuries. And the Psalms are part of this received language. In fact, that's one of the main reasons the book of Psalms exists, I think. I encourage you to take comfort in these ancient words that have been prayed by so many millions of Christians around the world for thousands of years. This is our common language. This language binds us together and binds us as one to the Father. The Psalms are like our ABCs of prayer, and we would do well to recite them and memorize them until they have become a part of the very fabric of our being. From the very early centuries of Christianity, believers have used the Psalms as a great school of prayer. In the 6th century AD, as the Roman Empire was dissolving, St. Benedict established an order in Italy that would be devoted to Christian work and worship. He wrote a little manual for initiates, and in that manual he describes the Psalms as central to ordering the life of all who would be a part of the community. The days were divided into eight three-hour time periods, and the monks would sing the psalms every three hours, finishing all of them in the space of one week and repeating every Sunday. In Northern England in the very next century, a monk named Bede even created an abbreviated version of the psalms that would aid in their daily recitation. The venerable Bede, as he is known, would take each psalm and work to distill it to its essence so that it could be more easily memorized and chanted. In reading through his abbreviated Psalter, you will notice that many of the psalms are only one or two lines long. But as one author says, this process made Bede into a living psalter and his writings are filled with citations from and allusions to the psalms. So prayer does not have to be an original language, and that is good news for me. I'm often too weary or too filled with doubt to come up with something fresh, and I take comfort that the Lord has given me the Psalms to pray back to him. It is not necessary to follow the Benedictine schedule exactly in order to be shaped by the Psalms. But I encourage you to engage them by memorizing them, by singing them, and even by rewriting them. As you go through the Psalms, you can write down single phrases or verses for each one that can become a kind of tagline for that Psalm. It can be an anchor point through which you engage the whole. As you repeat and memorize these lines, they will come to you in times of need and you can pray them as one-line prayers As I flipped open my Bible, as I wrote this, I came to the top of a page in the Psalms where I have written one verse from Psalm 52. In your name, I will hope, for your name is good. These are the ABCs of prayer. So here's point two, individual flowers in the garden. Back to our metaphor of the Psalms as a garden. Now, it doesn't take very long to recognize that the Psalter consists of many different types of Psalms or many different kinds of flowers, to use our metaphor. Scholars have devoted a great deal of time trying to figure out where these types originally came from and what settings they may have been written or performed in. We're not so interested in those questions at the moment as we are in the very fact of variety. In the garden that is the Psalms, we have laments and complaints, remembrances of past salvation, petitions for rescue, hymns of thanksgiving, meditations on creation, just to name a few. We can peruse this large garden and pick the ones we like or just the ones we need at the moment. Of course, that means we should be familiar with all the various species. But there's nothing at all wrong in treating the psalms like an anthology, in which one takes what one needs at the moment and leaves the rest for another day. So when you are in trouble, you may pray using the complaint psalms. When you want to meditate on the Lord's power over creation or on the goodness of creation, you can find a psalm for that. When it is time to give thanks, you may also find a psalm for that. In studying the Psalms and memorizing them, you build up a kind of repository of prayers and songs that can be used to match most any emotion. That is precisely what Calvin meant when he said they were like a mirror. We look at them and we see ourselves. And so we can begin to search through the Psalms for what they can provide in times of need. There are Psalms about mortality, and finitude, like Psalm 90. Psalms that talk about creation and provision, like Psalm 104. Psalms that speak of darkness and abandonment by one's friends, it's like Psalm 88. Psalms that talk about God's teaching as light and life, like Psalm 19 or Psalm 119. Psalms about God's presence, like Psalm 84, and so on and so forth. But in addition to picking and choosing the flower that is most suitable for the moment, the great variety of psalms in the Psalter can also help us vary our prayers when we are stuck in a rut. I'm sure most of us know what it is like to open our mouths to pray nearly the same thing almost every time. For many of us, those things are requests, Lord, please do so and so. Now that's not wrong. But we can also challenge ourselves to pray in different ways by thinking about our prayers through the lenses of the various types of psalms. For example, how many of us regularly pray to thank God for his saving acts in history? The psalms are filled with prayers like that. And I think that challenges us to remember God's saving works and to thank him for those works ourselves. Or maybe you come from a tradition in which praise and thanksgiving are the norm, but lament and complaint are looked upon as unfitting or even bad because they seem to represent a lack of faith. The book of Psalms challenges that notion too. In fact, at least one third of the Psalms are laments. So there is a place in the prayers of God's people for lament. On the other hand, maybe you're just prone to complaint or grumbling in general. The Psalms can challenge you to participate in other forms of communication, such as praise and thanksgiving. But in addition to picking and choosing the most beautiful flower for your purposes, the variety of Psalms can shape us as we pray new words and use new expressions that we may be accustomed to, unaccustomed to, excuse me. At first, these may feel quite foreign, but others with different experiences can teach us how they are helpful and fitting. Over time, those expressions that were once foreign will become a part of our prayer language too. In addition to the great variety of types of psalms, I'd encourage you to read the psalms in another way as well. Read for metaphor. For example, through the psalms you'll note that various images show up time and again. Mountains, fortresses, trees, water, deer, lions, traps, swords, children, just to name a few. You can pick one of those images and trace it through the Psalter. Oftentimes, those images tell a story that you can relate to and meditate on. So for example, the deer. We see deer crying out for water in Psalm 42. That image represents the psalmist's desire to be in the presence of God who will satisfy him. The deer is totally dependent on streams of potable water. And without those streams, the deer will die. So also with the psalmist and so also with us. We are utterly dependent on the living water that the Lord provides for us, and we can imagine ourselves as deer at a riverbed, seeking for our master to satisfy our thirst with living water. We long for God's presence like we long for water itself. Or the child in Psalm 131 who rests satisfied on his mother's chest. We're left to explore how we are like infants, utterly dependent upon the giver of life, who cradles us in his arms and cares for us and sustains our lives. Third, observing the garden as a whole. So the final point I'd like to make is about the garden as a whole. So far, we've considered the Psalms at the level of the individual flower, or maybe even a certain part of the flower, like an image that is productive for our meditation and our prayers. But in addition to combing through this garden for individual stems, what if the whole thing were arranged in a certain way that told a story? In fact, that is the case. The Psalter is a garden that is carefully manicured to tell a story, and we can use that story to shape our lives. One part of the story that the Psalms tell is about the coming Messiah. Early on in the book of Psalms, there are Psalms that speak of the enthronement of a Davidic king. As we move through the Psalms, the figure of Solomon becomes more prominent. And he is the one that the Israelites begin to put their hope in. That is treated explicitly in Psalm 72. But as you know, Solomon fails. And when the king fails, the relationship between God and his people is strained. Where is the king who will take up the mantle of justice and righteousness? Where is the one who will defend the cause of the orphan and the widow? Reading still further, we see that the Israelites begin to think that the covenant between God and Israel has been broken. And once we get to Psalm 90, the people are grasping at hope by recalling a now distant past when the Lord was their king. But then, toward the end of the book, a figure emerges once again who is a Messiah to come. This is one who will renew the relationship between God and his people. And it is in this renewal that the people start to put their hope. As Psalm 146 says, Do not trust in princes in mortal men who cannot save. That narrative of the coming Messiah and the growing distrust in human authorities to save is also one that we can orient our lives around. Just as the book of Psalms bears witness to an Israel whose political and religious authorities have failed them, so too we as a church often feel misplaced and directionless in a world that has like the foreign rulers in psalm 2 sought to break from the lord's sovereign rule but like israel we would do well to keep our hopes in a messiah and to pray for his reign and rule being sober to recognize that wealth or power or military might will do nothing to save our hope is in the lord But perhaps the most obvious arc of the Psalter is the movement from lament to praise. As I said earlier, at least one third of the Psalms are laments and this means that lament is the most common type of Psalm in the Psalter. That tells us that lament is very likely to be a part of our own journey and that to ignore it is a denial of reality. But the Psalter as a large garden also provides a context for lament. And that context is praise. Despite the many different types of psalms one finds in the book, the Hebrew title for the Psalter is Book of Praises. This suggests not that praise is the only thing we should experience, but that praise has the final word. It might also suggest that somehow, many of those things in the psalms and in our lives that seem to be the opposite of praise, like pain that racks the body, friends that have abandoned you, the oppression of the poor and the powerless, those things may somehow be part of a narrative of praise in the end. When you read the Psalms from start to finish, you'll notice that there is a great preponderance of lament and complaint at the front of the Psalter, whereas the end is especially oriented toward praise. And that is where our lives are headed too. Here I'm reminded of the words of one of my beloved teachers, Patrick Miller, which I will use as a conclusion. In his wonderful little book, The Lord of the Psalms, is an essay in which he treats the first question and answer of the Westminster Shorter Catechism as a prism through which to view what the Psalms are all about. As many of you know, the Westminster Shorter Catechism opens by asking, what is the chief end of man? meaning humanity and the answer is man's or humanity's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever at the end of that essay which is the last essay in the book Miller says in the holy place in our music in the theater of God's glory and especially in God's instructing word we are led to praise And to find the deepest enjoyment of the Lord who made us and meets us, who hears us and calls us. That is our chief end. And I take it that such a claim is not only about why we are here, but where we are going. The literary end of the Psalter seems to carry us to the end of our existence when we will be engulfed forever in the glory and in the joy of the lord amen